Welcome to another edition of the Dogger Pats Podcast. This for UFC Vegas 60. This episode of the Dogger Pats Podcast and all episodes of the Dogger Pats Podcast are brought to you by Prize Picks. Use promo code DOP when making a new account and get a match up to $100 on your first deposit. Cody Saftik's on the line. Producer Megan on the sticks. Come on. I mean, your boy Peak. What a comeback. What a comeback. I we I don't know him like you know him, Cody, but like that was pretty impressive on Contender Series last night. Yeah, obviously there's a lot easier ways to win in life, uh, but sometimes Trevor Peak takes the hard way. And, and listen, I knew it was obviously a sticky situation because you had hot trigger Mark Smith looking to stop the fight, and Peak got hit with some pretty big shots. But the whole time I knew Lewis is going to tie or Peak will take his shots, and uh, they call him the junkyard dog for a reason. So happy to get a plus money play there. Happy to get a plus money ticket. And the second ticket, third ticket, we end up hitting a two to one, mm-hmm. three and a half to one, six and a half to one. So uh, if there was a curse, it feels like it was lifted. And you know who got the job done for me? Trevor Peak. So hopefully he brings me a little bit of good luck this week. The last couple of uh, UFCs we've mentioned, you know, they're in Paris. It's not a great betting card. And then last week, of course, very exciting pay-per-view. It turned into an exciting pay-per-view. But again, it wasn't a good betting card. And then because of the late shuffle, it kind of definitely threw some things into a madness. So this week I look at it, 14 fights, tons to talk about, tons of spots you could pick through and uh, a lot of ones that you actually do feel quite decent about. So happy to be joined by you as always. Happy to talk some fights. You got the main event. We got Corey Sandhagen taking on Song Yudong. Minus 200 Sandhagen plus 170 for Song Yudong. Song Yudong, rising prospect, but it feels like not so long ago, Corey Sandhagen was the rising prospect in the two in the 135 pound division. Obviously, you know, it's um, the, the way that the market is kind of moving on this one. I, I don't really understand how the people are really backing Corey or uh, Song Yudong here. Corey Sandhagen, yes, he is quote unquote losing in uh, in these main events. Five round fights, though he's got lots of five round experience from the last two two times out. Most people kind of scored it as a win against TJ Dillashaw for him. The Peter Yan one, I mean, he still outstruck him by twenty significant strikes over the course of five rounds. But like the best strikes, the most impactful strikes were getting landed by Peter Yan. But those are extreme, extreme high level competition. I think that's going to really help him moving forward. And we, he really proved in those fights that, like, this guy is super durable. And that's where Song Yudong does his, does his best work, is just being able to capitalize, knock guys out. I think Song Yudong is a excellent talent that we're going to see so much more from in the uh, moving forward in, the, in his UFC run. But I do think minus 200 on, on Sanhagen is, is more than fair in this spot. Um, I'm kind of more interested from a betting perspective, though. Like, there's plus money on this under four and a half rounds, like plus 135. Like, what do you think about that, that part, of, part of it? And uh, who are you picking to win, Cody? 
Yeah, well, like you said, it seems like they're both prospects, but in actuality, Song Yudong, 24 years old, he's the legitimate prospect. He's the guy that's going to have a bright future and could contend for a championship in the next three or four years. Corey Sandhagen is the refined guy now. I mean, he's 30 years old, and he's already a top contender right now. You mentioned the TJ Dillashaw fight where he fights a former champion, a guy that's still world-ranked in the top three, top five of the division, fights some tooth and nail, and arguably did get robbed in that spot. But it's extremely high level. It shows that the level he's operating. Great cardio, can fight five rounds. Excellent striking. Wrestling defense was always maybe the one kryptonite to his game. Aljamain Sterling buzzsawed right through him on the basis of take him down, secure the back, get the rear naked choke. But since then, Sanhagen working at altitude, working in Colorado, getting a lot of different looks and working on particularly his wrestling. So I do think he's the complete package. I think he's a guy that can go out there and beat the best guy in the world on any given night. He just seems to be a bridesmaid more than a bride. Comes up just short in the fights that matter the most. Of course, Peter Yawn fighting him in that style of fight for five rounds. He dominated the early rounds. It's Peter Yan is a terminator. He never stops coming. Those kind of guys, maybe a Marlon Chito Vera, someone that you can beat early but will continuously plug along, those are dangerous. Song Yudong, we know that he's extremely talented, but we've never seen him in a five-round fight. We've seen him in a few three-rounders where he tends to slow down a little bit, but it's uncharted territories for him. When you look at his best wins, uh, of course, he did beat Marlon Vera, but that was a while back. I mean, if you're looking at the Marlon Moraes of the world, if you're looking at those kind of fights, they don't they pale a comparison to the level of experience that Corey Sanhagen's been at. So I go to agree with all your points. I think he's got more experience. I think he's got more versatility. When you watch the fights themselves, he's got a lot of output. That's something that flustered Peter Yan. Is Peter Yan likes to throw in combinations, but even he was having a hard time settling early, right? There's a lot of movement coming out of Corey Sanhagen. And for a counterpuncher like Song Yudong, I think that he's going to be getting hit two or three times by jabs, low kicks, general volume for every one time he's going to be able to sit down on one of his counters. So I would have to say that uh, over the course of five, he's just slowly going to get outworked ever so slightly. And that's not a knock on him. Again, he's young enough that he will be back at the highest level. It's just, it's a tough main event. So do I think Corey Sanhagen is the most confident pick on the entire card? No, but this is a good play to put him as your top ticket guy. And if you feel the need to back out on Song Yudong, hell, if you could even hit a Song Yudong live line, maybe that would be your best way of approaching that. But uh, I can't disagree with any of the points you made here, Paul. What do you think of the under? I feel like yeah, well, Sanhagen throws such like filthy, filthy flying knees, like rest in peace, Frankie, uh, <laughs> Frankie Edgar. <laughs> um, and Song Yudong hits like a truck. Like, I- I'm surprised that like people are very, very... Here, all I'm really saying is like I could never find myself laying like the minus 165 on the over four and a half because it just seems like you're paying chalk and your butt's going to be puckered from like opening bell to the to the final. You know, no, no, no doubt about it, because Corey Sandhagen is going to land somewhere in the neighborhood of 110 to 120 significant strikes. And Song Yudong is probably going to land somewhere in the neighborhood of 80, 90 himself. So, yeah, you're going to be sweating it the entire time. But it's not that both guys don't have power. Song Yudong is one of the bigger hitters in the division. Corey Sandhagen, as you mentioned, you know, crazy technique, flying knees. He is capable of knocking guys out. But both guys are durable. Both guys are not exactly known for getting knocked out. And even Peter Yon's last, or sorry, um, Corey Sandhagen's last fight against Yon, he got dropped. He was hurt, and I mean, he still kept coming forward. So I feel like both guys are durable enough that it likely does get into those later rounds. If it was going to be a stoppage, again, I'm thinking a fourth or fifth round stoppage on either side, really. But uh, I I would lean towards the over myself. Is the value there? Probably not. So I wouldn't fault you for taking the under four and a half. But to me, this just screams another one of Corey Sandhagen's last two fights. You know, five-round fights, Dillashaw, five-round fight with Peter Yawn. It's action-packed. Both guys are landing shots. Very thrilling fight. Close at times. But I don't necessarily think that someone's putting the other guy away here. 
We got Chidi Njikwani taking on Gregory Rodriguez. Chidi Njikwani is a minus 125 favorite. Gregory Rodriguez can be had for plus 105. Who you got? Going it over to me. Yeah, yeah. No, I, you know what? Chidi, Chidi Bang Bang's done an excellent job from going from mid-range regional guy, losing on Bellator shows, never quite really getting over the hump to all of a sudden he's 33 years old and he's at his best, you know, received a BJJ black belt. You see him use his grappling way more effectively now. And of course, he's got that big striking. One's got to wonder, though, how much of it is recency bias. Like, uh, it, people are forgotten on his past now. They're just looking at recent results. And the guy's on an extreme run. But again, look at it. Mario Suzo, you just saw him lose last night. Uh, third time he was on the Contender Series. And again, just not, maybe not at that level. So Chi beats him up, but I don't think that's a win that's going to be ranked at the world level, right? The win over Marcel Barrio is an excellent victory because Barrio never been knocked out. He's super durable. He knocked him out in 16 seconds. But again, this is stuff that you throw on the highlight reel. I, there's not as much substance. I don't get as much from a 16-second knockout as I do from a good gut-wrenching performance where you're in a bad spot and you got to overcome a bad spot and this and that. So the next fight with Dusko Todorovic is much of the same. Chidi just buzzsaws right through him. And I think now you know Chidi's extremely dangerous, sure, but he's an excellent hammer. Traditionally, he wasn't a very good nail, but of course, his last four fights, he's not had to bend the nail. He's just been hammering away in these guys. As such, he's basically near even money against Gregor Rodriguez, who I think is just continuously getting better and better. I mean, we know he's a BJJ black belt, very strong grappling. Cardio at times has looked off, but continuously getting better. He's still only 31 years old. His striking is getting a lot better, and I think he's getting a lot more comfortable. You can go back to a couple spots where it's like, oh, he did this wrong, he did that wrong. But that loss to Armin Petrosian, where I remember we had a shoey bet on it. I had Armin, you had Gregory. You don't think I was puckered for that fight, Paul? My God. He shatters Armin's face with a head kick, busted up, blood everywhere, nose broken, takes him down a couple times, put him in bad spots. The judges could have scored it either way, but I thought you did see a lot of actual skill out of Rodriguez. He just need to work on maybe a little more ring IQ, putting it all together, just being, being more comfortable in the cage. And then his last fighting is Julian Marquez. I don't know, call it, call it early knockout, call it you didn't get to see. Physically, he looked in excellent shape as he always does. It seems like his skills are heading in that direction. And I think for Chidi to win, which he could, He's got to finish Gregory early. He's got to put a beating on him early. He's got to get to him early. Do kind of what prior to him catching um, Jung Young Park. Remember, Jung Young Park had him almost dead to rights and then just walked into a counter shot. If he plays the outside game and he can hurt him, great. But I got a feeling that his striking is getting better. His defense is getting better. His wrestling might be a little bit better than Chidi's. If he can press him up against the cage, lean on him, potentially he could tire him out. And of course, if he gets him to the ground, Chidi's a black belt now, but Gregory Rodriguez is a better black belt. So establish top control, lean on him, tire him out, and then uh, find some openings. So I'm going to lean Gregory Rodriguez in the spot, but it's a volatile matchup that could go either way. And I don't know that you would want to trust it very high on your, uh, your list of priorities this weekend. Yeah, that's that's fair enough. I I tend to agree, and it seems like the mark like Chidi opened as a favorite, and then immediately Rodriguez became the favorite, and then it's flipped literally, you know, Tuesday night into Wednesday morning. Maybe people are fading the Greek or something. I don't know. Um, I kind of agree with a lot of. I think the Gregory Rodriguez has a lot more. A lot more pass to victory. Maybe he can mix in some wrestling, get this fight to the ground. Obviously, his fight against uh, Julian Marquez last time out. Like, we saw the amount of power that this guy holds in his hands. He's been relatively durable. Or, uh, sorry, uh, Marquez has been very, very durable, and then he got absolutely buzzsawed in that spot. So, 
I think when it really comes down to it, yeah, like I wouldn't be surprised if Chidi knocks him out, obviously pretty early in this fight, but I mean, it'll probably end up in the exact same situation as what I was hoping when I lost the shoey bet against you is like, I want Rodriguez to like utilize some wrestling, take this fight to the mat, uh, lay on top of him, fish for some sub submissions, and then he'll just go stand up uh, war with him. So a little like, and even like, yeah, the John Young Park fight, like he did the exact that was a spot where he wasn't necessarily able to wrestle, but he did just go like absolutely to war, ate some shots, didn't look particularly good. But if this market keeps moving this way, maybe I end up on Gregory Rodriguez. He'll be my pick for the, for the purposes of this show, but I'm hoping that the market keeps moving. I can snag like a plus 120 or something. May not get there, probably won't get there. But we will see. Moving on down, we've got Andre Touchy Feely taking on Bill Aljeo. Minus 120, Feely plus 100, Aljeo. This is an interesting one, Cody. Obviously, Feely comes out, signs a new contract. Everyone's feeling good for Mr. Touchy Feely. And he goes out there, first fight on his new deal, and gets absolutely just starched by yo anderson brito when he was like a big favorite in the spot everyone was you know ourselves included touting andre's durability toughness man this kid's come a long way i suppose on the the plus side in this spot bill jail is not like a murderous power puncher he's a volume guy good cardio but at least you're not gonna have to worry about like him you know one punch finishing andre feely but yeah, I mean, if that fight against Brito doesn't happen, like Feely's probably closer to minus 200 here. So I'm not going to buy into getting flash KO'd against Joe Anderson Brito. I'm going to keep with Andre Feely here. I just think he's further developed in his game than Bill Aljeo. So Feely for me, what about you? Yeah, reason to buy is can be a bitch for sure. And so if you remember, clearly you remember because we were on Feely. But one fight prior against Daniel Pineda, that's the best he's he ever did. looked. He was flowing, very fluid. Hands were on point. Uh, one thing about Pineda is that like he gives you hell for that first round, and then he tends to quit on himself after that. But the first round was completely dominated by Feely. Like, he beat the best version of Pineda in that first round. And, uh, and then in the second breaks him down, there's an eye poke. Pineda don't want to fight anymore. So it goes down as a no contest, but physically, mentally, skill-wise, he looked on point. Now, Feely is a guy that does tend to get countered. You can look in a lot of his fights, uh, the Sodik Youssef fight. He tends to sometimes get a little too close to his opponents, and they'll counter him over the top. And against Joannis and Brito, well, it's not going to work out in that spot because Brito's got heavy, heavy hands. He was able to clip him, land a nice counter, put him down. So... Uh, I think people will look back and say, well, he got knocked down his last fight, 47 seconds. It's a poor result. And don't get me wrong, it is a poor result on paper. But I don't think that takes away from where his skill set is at. Now, the thing with Bill Aljeo, and I'm a huge Bill Aljeo supporter, is this is these are all Bill's fights, okay? He's on the Contender Series versus Brendan Lucane. He got taken down three times by the British man. His debut against Ricardo Lamas, he got taken down five times. Against Spike Carlisle, he got taken down four times. Against Ricardo Ramos, and he was routed in that fight. He got taken down eight times. Against Joannis and Brito, he got taken down twice. Then Joannis and Brito completely gassed himself out. And then against Herbert Burns, he got taken down once. And then Herbert Burns completely gassed himself out. Mm -hmm. His takedown defense is rocking out of 54% throughout his career. 
with uh, the UFC in the contender series. But overall, I mean, he gives up multiple takedowns in basically every single fight he's had for the promotion. So Andre Feely is going to be able to mix in his wrestling, get on top. He's a little bit stronger in the clinch. And I think that's going to help him rack up some points. In terms of the actual striking, I think Feely's a little smoother. He's a little more crisper. He's a little more linear. I would give the volume advantage to Bill Aljeo. And I think Bill Aljeo is durable enough to take all of Feely's shots, of course. But I think Feely will be do, will do an excellent job of using his footwork and then mixing in those takedowns to secure rounds in route to a decision victory. So I will take Andre Feely here on the basis of the wrestling advantage. And I do think he gets it, uh, the job done via unanimous decision or decision in general. Yeah, the uh, on prize picks, the Feely over under for significant strikes is 50.5. But, you know, you look at that Jordan fight for Andre Feely, and that's when he really, like, you know, he leaned on the wrestling big time in that fight, even the uh, Sadiq Yusuf fight. And he didn't get over that 50.5. So I was considering that as like a prize pick selection. But, you know, if he does yeah. really, if he really does lean on the wrestling, he's probably not going to get there from a significant strike. So I think they kind of set a good line here because we would expect Andre Feely to try to utilize the wrestling, take advantage of his opponent's biggest weakness in this spot. So, yeah. Yeah. And also, we'll, we'll, we'll see Jones what the- weigh ins look like. And then maybe I'll add Feely to the card. But prize picks, I'm avoiding. Uh, that spot altogether, to be honest. Um, no, I'd agree with you. Bill's a black belt. Fantasy, so score, even if over, the fight the- fantasy score over 75.5. But then you're kind of like you need him to win. Um, so might as well just bet it, I suppose. Sorry, what, what were sure. you about to say? No, no, all good. Let's move on. Let's move on. We got Tanner Bozer taking on Rodrigo Nascimento. Minus 170 Bozer. Plus 150 Nascimento. Who you got here, buddy? Yeah, I'm expecting to see a lot just more improvements over Tanner Bozer overall. I mean, if you want to call them both kind of middling level heavyweights, uh, that's fair. But Tanner Bozer's kind of got a better uh, X factors to him. He's very mobile for the weight class. I mean, he's got good footwork. He's able to stay to the outside and just kind of chip shot away. Back on the Canadian regional scene, he was not known for having power. He was mostly known for just kicking your leg from the outside. But in the UFC, you do see some results. Felipe Linz, the Rafael Pessoa fight, where he does kind of let his hands go and he does have a little bit of power. I thought he got robbed against uh, Andre Arlovsky. You know, he clearly outstruck him from the outside, but Arlovsky's a fan favorite. So it's a bad result, but not necessarily a terrible performance. And then the Ilya Latifi fight as well. Very interesting because he could have won the fight and he gives a couple key takedowns to Ilya Latifi. So again, I feel like he's a guy that's better than his record shows on paper. And it's just a matter of kind of putting it all together. Beats off in St. Pru's last time out and then more or less has taken off the better part of a year. I think it's like 15 months that he's been on the sidelines. So he's still only 31 years old, which as you know, at heavyweight is still very, very young. I think he's making improvements. He's fast. He's, he's mobile as a heavyweight. He's got good output for a heavyweight. And I feel like he's just adding those other wrinkles to his game with Rodrigo Nascimento. I went outright come out and call this guy a fraud. It's just, he hasn't really been able. Yeah. He hasn't shown us basically anything. His career before he signed with Zuffa is not, is nothing. He's on the Brazilian regional. He's fighting in little gym shows. He's fighting in little favela shows. And I mean, Oh, and four guys, one and four guys. Oh, and O guys. It's just, again, not much that you can really pull away from it on the contender series against Michael Martinick. He looked a lot better. Of course, Martinick is not that big of a man. So of course, Nascimento is going to have a natural advantage over him beats him. Dante Mays' UFC debut, I didn't think he looked very good there. Of course, Dante Mays, very, very limited as a fighter. It's just the last two I want to focus in on. The Chris Doukas fight, 
knocked out in 45 seconds. It, this guy is a, he prefers to strike. He seems to be more of a striker. Like, I don't know that his ground game is really all that good. He likes to lean on guys up against the cage and kind of slow them down. But it seems like he makes his money with his hands. And Chris Dokas just annihilates him in 45 seconds. If you don't have the chin to go out there and just implement a hard 15 minutes of striking, it's hard to get behind him. But then the the, the next fight with Alan Bodo, <laughs> the first round he loses. Yeah. He loses the first round That's to smart. Alan Bodo. He's slow. He's flat footed. He's not able to cut the ring off. His hands are just no good. And Alan Bodo wins the round. I remember thinking to myself, like, I'm about to take a massive bath on this. And then in the second round, Bodo tends to get tired and he just leans against him up against the cage, tires him out, and then gets the TKO finish. Ends up getting a no contest out of it because turns out he's on some extracurriculars. Mm-hmm. None of this bodes well, man. If that's the best version of him, not very good. The two performances that you've seen in him, I mean, yeah, he beat Mays in his debut, but his last two performances probably is most meaningful too. He's just largely looked out of it. So how does he match up with Tanner Bozer? Well, Bozer is way faster than him. We'll be able to stay on the outside and just chip away with shots, out-volume him. Do the same thing Bodo did, essentially, which is just beat him to the punch and be faster. If he at any points decides, screw it, I'm just going to enter the pocket rec- re- recklessly and crash it, I think Tanner Bozer's got some uh, decent enough power that he's just going to clip him with a right hand coming in. If the thing stretches into a second or a third round bozer's got way better cardio so he kind of beats him everywhere but of course it goes back to the same thing we talk about every week which is like middling heavyweights man got burned by jake collier last week it's the same thing like it looks obvious on paper but they're they're middling heavyweight anything can happen keep in mind bozer's been off for 15 months so we're expecting him to look better but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the case yeah uh, fully agree on pretty much all fronts. Just want to point out that Tanner Bozer's yeah prize pick significant strikes is thirty five point five. It's like if you watch that uh, Baudo versus Nascimento fights, like it only gets into the second round and Baudo lands sixty. Bozer's a pretty high volume guy as long as he's not getting taken down, held on his back. Like I mean, or if he gets like a first round knockout, which has happened, it obviously happened against. Felipe Lins, but he hasn't really been known as like being a murderous power puncher by any stretch of the imagination. I think 35.5 is too low. So I'm going to be going more on the significant strikes. And I like Bozer as well. Uh, we got Anthony Fluffy Hernandez taking on Mark Andre Barrio. Fluffy is a minus 170 favorite. Barrio can be had for plus 150. What are your thoughts, Cody? Yeah, this one's definitely one that I want to dive on, dive into a little bit more just because the line seems generous enough. And I don't know for sure. It might just be a trap. But with Fluffy Hernandez, here's a guy that people often said was good in the gym. And then maybe you didn't often see it kind of in the cage. So uh, people that train with them, they all just rave about the guy. He's got excellent wrestling. He's got excellent pace. He's got excellent cardio. They always liken him to like a smaller version of a Cain Velasquez. I know people laugh at that, but again, he's just like smothers you with pace. And then as far as the UFC goes, you've seen some glimpses of it, but again, submitted by Kevin Holland, not a good look. Uh, And then chokes out Rodolfo Vieira. That one was impressive because it's a huge submission win, but the way he got it was just outlasting. Mm -hmm. His cardio looked pretty good in that spot and he's able to capitalize on a great spot. Then that Josh Frem fight. So I had it. I had Frem as like the 13th most confident guy in the card. He was my PRP pick for no other reason really than I thought I may chase a little bit of plus 125 action or something. Frem's a decent enough prospect, right? Comes from the LFA scene. He's kind of well-rounded, decent striking, decent wrestling, uh, decent cardio. Looked okay. The version of Hernandez that we saw in that fight was the Cain Velasquez reference version. He was just smothering, man. Eight takedowns. 
never gave him a second, you know, stuck on him like glue and just systematically broke him down over and over and over again. So, I mean, if that's the guy that's going to show up, I'd be interested in betting him against lots of people because I love that style. It's relentless. He had the cardio to back it up and he's only going to be getting better and better. He's 28 years old. So again, you're going to be seeing improvements out of this guy. And I thought that that was a pretty solid version of him. Marc-Andre Barrio is tough and that's about it. You know, he's a guy that'll take a lot of fights. He's durable enough. Uh, if you have suspect cardio, he kind of comes together in the late rounds, but I, I don't know. A lot of his fights are very sloppy. Three fights back, the fight with Dolce Lungambulia. Uh, if you rewatch it, I mean, it's actually quite close. It's not as if he looks particularly good against the, against him. And it's a low-level opposition. He also gives up two takedowns in that spot. Not mm -hmm. good. The very next fight against Chidi and Jaquani, he got knocked out in 16 seconds. I'll give you a pass on that one. But for the record, first time Marc-Andre Barrio ever been knocked out. So now his legendary toughness and durability, at least to a certain extent, needs to be somewhat called into question and then he goes out and beats jordan Wright, and it's like he's back like no he's not the two fights prior are bad results right he's trending downwards he beats jordan Wright, which i can't say is the most impressive thing in the world physically he looked good um training down at sanford mma or Killcliffe fc whatever they call themselves nowadays like i i'm surely he's getting excellent rounds in the gym every day and making improvements and yes he does have that toughness and that durability but I feel like Hernandez just get on him like a dog on a bone, mm. wrestle him to the ground, be relentless, press him up against the cage, tire him out, make it sloppy, and secure at least two of the three rounds. And then Barrio's not exactly known for like fight ending power. Like he's a guy that's just tough and rugged. So if you can just win the first two rounds, you could run away or flop to your back for a like care. Probably still secures a decision victory. So I got to go with Hernandez to get the job done. Yeah, I'm, I'm leaning towards Hernandez here as well. I mean, my initial thought when I looked at this number is, like, Barrio. But, like, uh, upon further inspection, it's like... I mean, he got taken down twice by Jordan Wright, the Beverly Hills Ninja. Like, that doesn't happen. <laughs> who, who, who watches tape... Or when you're Jordan Wright and you're like, I'm going to wrestle this guy. It's just like, you saw something... You saw the Delta fight, where Delta also took him down two times. So, it's like, I was looking at prize picks and I was like three takedowns for fluffy hernandez and then like i mean you go through barrios you know barrios numbers it's like taken down five times by the uh the iron turtle and then yeah two by lungiambula two times by jordan wright yeah fluffy should be able to just at least match barrios pace if it's on the feet it's going to be relatively competitive between the two of them but yeah, Fluffy should be able to just continuously wrestle this in this fight and um, probably eke out a decision. But I wouldn't be surprised by like a submission finish. Obviously, if uh, if he gets him in the right spot. So um, Hernandez, what's Hernandez by sub? That could be something that gets me excited about this fight. Let's see here. Hernandez submission. Let me see. Submission. That's, yeah, the books are not giving you too much. It's like plus 300 is the best opportunity out there. So, I mean, when you have, yeah, when you have a, terrible. it's not bad, but when you have a submission over Rodolfo Vieira, they don't exactly give you, you know, there's no freebies anymore on the submission front. Um, if that had never, no, but if that had never happened, you're probably getting like at least five to one on that number. But, uh, that kind of showed how legit he was being able to stave off all of the world-class jiu-jitsu guys, you know, attempts like that and then get his own was, was pretty remarkable to be perfectly honest. He was a guy that we used to dog on, frankly, on this program, but, uh, 
he's he's put in the work. He's made the improvements. So Hernandez for both of us. We move on. We've got Pat Sabatini taking on Damon Jackson. Sabatini a minus one eighty favorite. Damon Jackson can be had for plus one fifty five. I don't think I've ever been a Damon Jackson guy, and uh, I've been I've been paying for it recently. Like the guy has really put in the work. He's on a three-fight win streak. It is against lower-level competition in David Argetta, Kamuela Kirk, and, and Charles Rosa. Guys that, I mean, Kirk, I suppose, had a bit of a striking advantage, but Damon Jackson was able to absolutely body him, take him down repeatedly, control him at range. Charles Rosa's happy to flop off of his back, so that's kind of how that fight usually plays out. And Argetta... Um, Came in on, like, really, really short notice. Was really, really undersized in the spot. Um, and memory serves correct. I obviously didn't and get around. bodied him. Was, how, how close was that fight? I can't recall off the top Uber of my head. And I haven't watched the yeah. haven't watched the TV. Yeah, I mean, the stats look pretty close. I'm going to have to well, go Dave, back and Daniel watch Daniel Argueda that. took the fight on, like, a week's notice. He's a career 35-er that came up to 145 to take the fight, and he had fought an LFA card four weeks earlier, so he gave himself every disadvantage, and in the first round, Jackson won it. Second round, Jackson's completely gassed. Argueta almost knocks him out. Third round, Jackson's completely gassed. Argueta almost knocks him out again, but Jackson found a second gear. He found a second gear in the third round, helped him get through it, helped him get the win. The thing is, is that he was a minus 720 favorite over a guy that was undersized, fighting up a weight class on short notice who had just fought a month prior, so None, none of that bodes well for him. I, uh, I, I, yeah, I will admit. Do you want my take on it? Is that Damon Jackson is extremely talented, but also fights to the level of his opponent at times. And you just don't know what version you're going to get. Um, against Kamala Kirk, I thought he looked career best. His wrestling looked awesome, on point. Took him down whenever he wanted. Striking looked good. He was aggressive, standing in the pocket. You know, he's training at Fortis MMA with some of the best guys. And he's getting better. 34 years old, but experienced. And, you know, decent decision-making in there, and that experience is allowing him to to get solid victories. But the fight with Daniel Arguedo is just extremely, extremely sloppy. Here's the thing with MMA, though, is that you never know if they're going to be the best version of themselves when they enter the cage at that specific time. Sometimes these guys look really good three fights back, two fights back. They look awful their last fight. You expect them to look awful again because they did their last fight. And it's completely different. I got burned. Another thing I got burned on last week was Julian Arosa against Akeem Duwadu. In no way or shape or form did I think Arosa was going to come out there and look that good. But, you know, he did look that good when he fought Charles Jourdain. Then his next fight against Steven Peterson, he hustles up a greasy split decision over Steven Peterson. And his very next fight, he puts on a career-best performance against Akeem Duwadu. So, uh, again, you can only go by, do they have the skills to pull it off? And in Jackson's case... He's got the skills to pull off a, an underdog win over here against Pat Sabatini. Pat Sabatini is extremely one-dimensional. He does not strike. He just looks to get you down, get you down, hold you down. His submissions are okay, but for the most part, it's just positional awareness. I mean, he'll take your back. He'll put those hooks in. He'll hold you down. He'll get on top. He'll hold you down. It's a lot of that rinse and repeat. If someone was able to stuff the takedowns and keep this thing standing against him, they'd likely box him up. I think Damon Jackson would. Damon Jackson is a BJJ black belt, so it's not as easy to take him down and just put a mauling on him without him throwing up anything. Mursad Bektic tried to do that, phenomenal athlete, and the entire time he's asking in guillotine chokes, trying to get out of them. Eventually, Damon Jackson sticks him in the third round. He's dangerous enough that, one, I think he's going to be difficult to take down. Two, if you do take him down, he's going to be you know, continuously working to get back up. If he does get back up, he's going to have the striking advantage. If he stuffs the Pat Sabatini takedowns outright, he's going to have the striking advantage. 
he could use all those, I think, to good effect to maybe, you know, squeak something out here. With Pat Sabatini, if you look back, I mean, kind of all of them, really. But against Jamal Emmers, he's getting beat up pretty handedly on the feet, and then he falls onto a heel hook. So you see in that fight, again, this guy's not comfortable in the striking range. But against Tucker Lutz, the next fight out, I mean, he gets takedowns against Lutz. He doesn't particularly want to stand with him. He just tries to stick onto him like glue. It's a clean performance in that he wins all the rounds. But it wasn't exactly like a spectacular performance. It's the next one against TJ Laramie. Laramie's like five foot four. He's not a featherweight. The guy should be fighting at bantamweight. In the first round, he easily stuffs all of his takedowns. He ends up on top of him. The only reason Pat Sabatini won that first round is because he hurt him with a body kick. Other than that, the cleaner work on the feet and on the ground is done by TJ Laramie. In the second round, it's much of the same. There's a lot of scrambles. TJ has success. He lands on top a few times. Unfortunately, he's a 23-year-old kid with the bright lights in front of him who's undersized, taking on a better grappler. Pat Sabatini is able to use his own experience to get the win. I think that's off the table with Damon Jackson. I think if you give him the same opportunities that you gave TJ Laramie to end up on top, going to be a problem. If you don't take him down as easy as easily as you took TJ down, going to be a problem. Bigger, stronger, more experienced. I just feel, and then Jackson's got a questionable chin for sure. And Argueta zaps him. And you look at some of his other fights, uh, Ilya Tapuria zaps him. Uh, back in the day, on the uh, it was the Legacy Fighting Championship, he get you know bad knockout loss there as well. It's like maybe he's got a potentially questionable chin. I don't think Pat Sabatini's ever knocked out anybody. All of his wins are decision or submission. Not a striker. Doesn't have big power. So if Jackson can get into a rhythm, stuff a few takedowns, box him up a little bit, throw some submission attempts at those lines. I, I'm sniffing this one as my p- first potential apple pie shitters. I will just avoid Sabatini, if anything. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I have to obviously dig into tape a little bit more, but I wasn't too ex- I mean, yeah, Sabatini's not absolutely dominating from top, which is what he does in most of his fights. But if he has any sort of resistance down there, which we haven't seen too much of, maybe Jackson could make it a little bit ugly on the feet. and uh, and And, you know... Just squeeze by in this matchup. Not one I'm even very confident, but uh, I'll lean towards the underdog in Jackson with you. Um, which, you know, historically will probably mean that, uh, that Sabatini's going to absolutely roll because I don't think I've ever really got a Damon Jackson fight right. Uh, Trevin Giles takes on Lewis Koski. Minus 200 or minus 210 for Giles, plus 180 for Koski. What's your take here, buddy? Yeah, this is another one I'm just going to take a flyer out on the underdog. And, um, I mean, I'm fading low level with low level. It is what it is. I get it. But Trevin Giles... Trevin Giles two to one, like man, what are you talking about? So of course we know the the problems with Trevin Giles is that it looks like he's very lazy in there, body shape, uh, 185 pounds. I know this is at 170, but just never seemed all that interested. And he would fade out in the third round. He's winning the Zach Cummins fight until the third round. Gasses out, gets hurt, gets choked out. He's doing doing decent against Jeremy Sharp. Gasses out, gets taken out in the third round. So that's of course going to be his problem. But we got to look at the last three, right? It's all about, like, what is he, what have you done lately? So the fight with Roman deletes, again, his hands are just super low the entire time. It looks like he's looking to counterpunch, but he's got very low volume. Roman deletes does get takedowns on him, but deletes does it to himself. He flops on leg locks, continuously looking for a stupid leg lock, allows Trevin Giles to land a couple shots from on top, and then that's kind of what steals those rounds for Trevin Giles. But no way, shape, or form is it like it's a very clean victory for him. And, of course, if you look at fight metric, the numbers – very, very low numbers. Could have lost the fight. Got the win. Showed he's undersized. Against Dreykus Duplacis, gets taken down twice right off the hop again. Two takedowns. Ends up on his back. Dreykus gets back up. Wins the first round. 
I think you're looking at this is a guy that can be taken down. And then beyond that, he's not letting his hands go. It doesn't matter if he's got a little bit of power. He does not let his hands go. He's waiting to counter. He never lets his hands go. Third, or The second round, Dreykus just walks in. It's the very, it's, it's crazy. The very first two punches that Giles throw, because the whole fight he's throwing one at a time, one at a time, one at a time. It's like, bro, you got to throw a combo. Why doesn't he throw two at a time? The very first time he throws two at a time, Dreykus counters him with the right hand, knocks him out. So I think that's part of his hesitancy. He doesn't feel comfortable throwing more than one punch at a time. And so staying to the outside and doing that is not going to have great results. But he decides, you know what? 185, not the weight class for me, drops down to 170, which is great because the results are not there at 185. He doesn't look good. This is a chance to show that he's reinvigorated. So he fights Michael Morales at 170. Physically, the best that Trevin Giles has looked. The first two minutes of the fight, the best that Trevin Giles has ever looked. As soon as Michael Morales got up after that first takedown and partially landed his first shot, Giles immediately reverted back to the same guy he was. Hands down, cautious, didn't want to engage. And it's a crazy sequence. Right hand drops him. He pops back up. He's clearly hurt. And then a short shot, like almost like a jab, like to the side of the head, just crumples him, drops his equilibrium. I think you're looking at a guy that's chin is definitely going to be into question. He's been finishing four, uh, all four of his losses, finished. Used to just get tired and then get hurt. Now he's just getting hurt right off the hop. Tried to move down to 170. Hasn't gotten the results. Doesn't look like he can fight beyond one round competitively at a high level. None of it's all well and good. So I get that he could beat Lewis Koski. That I understand. But to say that he's a minus 200 favorite over anybody, I'm not entirely sure about that. Now, Koski, why would we look to back him? I mean, okay, yeah. so let's give him a yeah, let's give him a couple. I know, very ugly, very ugly. We'll give him a couple benefit of the doubts. First and foremost, he's 27. This is his first fight in just about two years. So the last time you saw him, he's 25 years old in his UFC debut, bewildered. Now he's 27 years old. That's two years, more time to mature. He spent those last two years full-time in Las Vegas with his brother. His brother's competing and picked up a victory in the UFC. So it's not inconceivable that he's going to be a you know a progressed version of himself, better skill set, a little more comfortable, a little more mature. And two years in Vegas is surely going to help him. He's got the wrestling advantage over Trevin Giles and that this guy wrestled at a fairly decent level in like uh, high school, later wrestled a little bit collegiately. I think he could take Trevin Giles if need be. Um, and then beyond that, he's got a lot of power. So like if you watch back the fight with Sasha Polotnikov, he drops him in the first round. He rocks him, huge ground and pound, lands something like 56 significant strikes in the first round. But he's never been to a second round in his entire career. So once he emptied the clip on Sasha in the first round, he gasped. And then he got through a second round where he still landed 26 significant strikes. In the third round, he's dead dog tired. He ends up getting finished in the third. That's a good learning experience for a young fighter because he showed that he you got a bit better cardio. It showed that he did have a little bit of grit. The wrestling's still there. The kid's got big power. And those are all things that Giles doesn't like. He doesn't like big power. If you hurt him early, he's not coming back like Sasha. He's not biting down on his mouthpiece and gritting it out. When Giles gets hurt, he turtles up and they stop the fight. So I think that Koski has a chance to just clip him with something and hurt him. I think Koski has a chance to bully him up against the cage and score takedowns. And then last but not least, Koski's got terrible cardio. But Giles don't got great cardio either. So, you know, I think just Koski's live is all I would say. I'd say he's live. The two years off would be good for him because he was not very good. No, a guy like that needed to spend two years getting beat up in the gym every day, working with top level training partners to get that that comfortableness. And Trevin Giles is not even at Fortis anymore. He's training at like the war MMA room. 
with Charlie Ontiveros. Yeah, so like, what the fuck? I bleeped that. <laughs> I don't know if I dropped enough on there or not. But, but all the same, um, I don't know. I, I'm just thinking the dog might be able to come out here and pull something off. So sign me up for some small fractions of uh, Koski. That's so gross. But, like, I mean, yeah, if you're going to bet Koski, it's, it's based on the fact that he's still young and you're hoping that the last two years weren't didn't go to waste because we haven't seen him in two years and he's coming off of the loss to Sasha Palatnikov which is I mean Palatnikov lost all of his all of his fights after winning that Palatnikov got absolutely iced and then I believe didn't he just go and lose on like the regional scene as well on top of that so like that's a horrible that's a horrible (laughs) L what I wanted to really say and what I think is the prized piece of all of this Trevin Giles on prize picks is listed as having 1.5 takedowns. That is a number he has never cleared in any of his UFC fights. And the fact that you were even considering that Koski's going to have a wrestling advantage, I mean, you got to do the less. Less takedowns than 1.5 for Trevin Giles. The guy's never really been a wrestler. I don't know where they pulled this number out of, but uh, they probably pulled it out of a hat, so... Adding that to my thing, I don't know if I'm going to... We'll see what weigh-ins ha- what happens at weigh-ins. Um, because you suggested it, Cody, and I'm going to completely blame you when people say, hey, you were wrong about the Koski pick. I'd be like, actually, I just blind-tailed Cody. But I'm not actually... I don't think I'm actually going to get to it from a betting perspective, unless I see somebody at weigh-ins. Um, but yeah, I'll pick Koski for the purposes of this show. Woof. Moving on down, we got Joe Pfeiffer taking on Alan Amadovsky. Pfeiffer is a minus one or sorry, minus 450 favorite. Amadovsky is plus 350. I mean, it's pretty clear that the UFC likes Joe Pfeiffer because he's getting the Alan Amadovsky uh, treatment here. It's a really, really startling number to kind of look at, but like Amadovsky, and I don't say this very often these days, but he is the worst fighter in the UFC middleweight division. I don't think that's even like debatable at this point. So, Pfeiffer wins minus 450 is kind of crazy though. What's your take? Yeah. So again, through tape study in the past Sabatini fight, you watch TJ Laramie. He's like, damn, TJ fought once against Derek Minner, who's a submission specialist, if there ever was one, catches him. Damn, it happens. Next fight, he fights three competitive ish rounds with Pat Sabatini as a five to one underdog, and then just release him after two fights. And their explanation is, you know, I'm just not quite ready. And, you know, go back to the regional scene and work your way back up. We'll, we'll have you back. But, how do you tell a guy like that that has a whole lot of skill? They're not ready. And yet you allow Alan Amadovsky to fight out his four-fight contract. Like, at what point was it like, yeah, dude, maybe we shouldn't have this guy in the cards anymore? No, no, no. They enjoy bringing him out. And uh, he's not really shown us anything. I mean, takedown defense, non-existent. Cage control, non-existent. Known for his striking power, I guess, back before he signed with the UFC, you know, fought for Bellator a little bit. Seemed to have some heavy-ish hands. But then when he gets in striking exchanges with guys, it's much of the same. Chin's not that good. Way up in the air. Defense, not all that good. He's lost to, like, a variety of guys at this point. Christoph Jocko outgrinded him, which is not, I don't know, I guess that's how Jocko tries to fight. But it just showed right there that even mid-level grinders will easily be able to control him against the cage. John Phillips knocks him out with 14 seconds, so even low-level brawlers that just stand in the pocket, he's not going to have success with. And then that last fight with Joseph Holmes, I mean, where do, would you rank Joseph Holmes? You know, more of a kickboxer, likes to rely maybe a little bit on his grappling, and he just buzzsaws right through him. So with Pfeiffer, he's kind of got a good story. He was on the Contender Series twice. He broke his arm the first time. The second time was the first episode this year. He was the only guy on the show to get a contract on that episode. 
And I don't know. They must like the guy. They must want to ease him into the division, which is awesome um, because they don't usually do that for a whole lot of guys. And against Alan Namandovsky, I just think he's got him beat everywhere. Like the thing with Joseph Pfeiffer is he's like a career lifelong martial artist. His uh, dad, which is, again, part of his story. You can check out that part on your own. But he's been doing jiu-jitsu. started off with Japanese jiu-jitsu when he was like four years old. From there, he transitions to Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He wrestled in high school. He was a very good high school athlete. He's like a golden glove boxer. I mean, he's kind of the full package. In the Stolfoots fight, he broke his arm posting. Mm -hmm. I don't really think you got to see the best of him in that spot. But watching tape on the regional scene, he looks very comfortable for a guy that is still supposed to be inexperienced. He's not exactly like super young. He's not super old. He's in that sweet spot where it's like he's making improvements. He's getting better. He's getting more comfortable. But this is also something he's been doing for, you know, over 20 years. I think he's got Amandowski beat everywhere. If it stays at range, Amandowski's going to swing big haymakers. He might have a slight power advantage, but the crisper, cleaner technique is going to be Piper. I think Piper fights longer. He's got a more educated jab. He's got a bigger wrestling advantage. He's got better ground skills. He could beat him wherever he wants. And again, he's the biggest favorite on the car, but at four to one or whatever it is, it doesn't even like I'm a parlay guy. So like he's a parlay piece for a guy like me. I can understand straight bats. Maybe there's not enough meat on the bone at this point. And it is a low level fight. UFC debut. I got burned on that Michael Figlack. Like you don't know how these guys are going to respond when they fight in the UFC. I, I get that part. But again, skill for skill. It's like Piper's got him beat pretty much everywhere across the board. So unless it's some crazy rejuvenated version of uh Alan Amadovsky, like it was for Zayam on that night. Like Zayam looked career best. If Alan, Alan Amadovsky comes out and looks career best, then damn. But he's 34. I don't see the improvements out of him. Zayam is my bad. He's like 24 years old. Like obviously he's going to be still making progression to his career. So I don't know. I, I think Piper's got him beat all over. And Piper's definitely a top ticket or top two ticket play this week. Yeah. I mean, you know me. I'm kind of like the underdog value, value boy. And Friends don't let friends bet on Alan Amadovsky. Like, do not. Don't the even, worst guy on the roster. He is the worst guy on the roster. It's like, I'm not even going to bat an eye at people parlaying Joe Pfeiffer this week because, yeah, if you, like, at what number would you even play Alan Amadovsky? I don't even know. I don't know. I think well, he's if that, you're going to play him, I, play I him by knockout. Bad. Yeah, of course. And that's probably pretty wide, but. I mean, Pfeiffer, yeah, the only the only times he's ever been finished were, what, he got submitted um, ways back by in by Jonathan Patti back in uh, 2019. And then, yeah, the Stolfus ones, like, he was actually doing well in that fight. And, uh, and just, like, yeah, posted, hurt his arm. It wasn't even, yeah, it wasn't even a legitimate loss. But, uh, yeah, Pfeiffer rolls pretty, pretty clearly. Moving on down, we got Cody's baby, Aspen Ladd, taking on Sarah McMahon. Minus 145, Aspen Ladd, plus 125, McMahon. Who you got, buddy? I mean, people here. Yeah, it's crazy how the talk money about Aspen Ladd. Yeah, when I, when I was looking at it uh, earlier, I was like, is that Aspen Ladd's money line or the weight that she's going to come in at? Because uh, <laughs> it's I'm not 100%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to be 35, but it's yeah. Aspen Ladd. So, I mean, exactly. listen, she did make 136 her last time out, but we've seen her struggle on the scales mightily. Someone that's actually struggled with weight cutting throughout the entirety of her career. She used to fight at 125, had trouble there, moved to 35, has had trouble there. 
They dogged her into a main event one time at 145. And I don't know. She just weight cutting is going to be a problem. So even if she does make it, it's always a question of how much does it take out of her and how comfortable is it going to be? She's also fairly young, I think 26, 27 years old. So the body's naturally getting bigger. She's not exactly a small gal. So it's like, I think, and I mean that in a respectful way, but like she's, she's built pretty powerfully. Uh, I, I don't know that weight cutting is going to be the easiest thing the older you get, right? And then the last thing is her head coach is her boyfriend, Jim West. And regardless of if people think he was giving bad in-fight advice, I just don't know how you push your significant other to get over that hill because as a head coach, as a Mike Thomas Brown, as like some of the better guys in the sport, like you have to be able to push the athlete to that next level. And what happened with Brian Caraway and Misha Tate was you can't be boyfriend and head coach at some point there's going to be some pushback and some resistance right so uh with aspen lad the worry is is she going to make weight is she getting better is she mentally focused is she all these different things and i'm not going to lie when i first seen the fight announced i was like sarah mcmahon would be live here if they're going to give you okay plus money simple fact is she's got a wrestling advantage and she can easily get takedowns and set up shop on top aspen lad has effectively fought raquel pennington norma dumont janice kutskaya jermaine durandamy none of which are really known for their takedowns. In fact, she's only defended eight takedowns in the UFC. Sorry, that's a lie. She's defended five of them. She got taken down three times on eight career takedown attempts, right? So I think wrestling is a avenue. I think you could take her down. Sinjara Eubanks, not the level of wrestler of a Sarah McMahon. Sinjara Eubanks, not the size and, and, and as strong as a Sarah McMahon. Yeah, why not use that avenue? Get takedown, set up shop on top. Of course, Sarah McMahon can do that. And she did that in her last fight with Carol Rosa, which I got burned on that spot. Carol Rosa, better fighter, better striking. Seemed like she was on the up and up, doing good for herself. I believe BJJ Black Belt and Sarah McMahon just took her down, set up shop, got on top, did nothing. Doesn't boring, have to ground and pound. Doesn't have to. Super boring. But if you can't get back up, that's what she's going to do to smother you. So I initially thought that. Initially thought maybe that would be a path to Sarah McMahon to just complete these takedowns. Here's why I don't think it's going to be. It's going to end up being a no moss. I'm going to take my baby Aspen Lab. Sarah McMahon, 41 years old, left team alpha male, no longer there, running her own gym. So essentially, she's kind of half self-trained at this point as well. Doesn't have oh a God. whole lot of training partners. This but girl knows how to wrestle. No, no, this is a negative. This is why I'm taking Aspen Lab. Oh, uh, you said 41, Sarah McMahon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry. 41, training herself, not a whole lot of training partners. None of that bodes well. But almost in all of her fights, she just gives it up, right? The Ketlin Vieira fight wins the first round, subbed in the second. The Marion Renault fight wins the first round, subbed with a triangle choke in the second. The Juliana Pena fight falters, subbed in the third round. Carol Rosa pre presented no pushback. The first round, she just took her down. It was arguably a 10-8. Rosa did absolutely nothing. In the second round, she took Rosa down. Rosa did absolutely nothing. In the third round, Rosa is doing absolutely nothing and somehow still ends up on Sarah McMahon with two and a half minutes to go. Beats her the last two and a half minutes. Probably did win the third round. Sarah McMahon still almost blew it. She always almost blows it. Mm -hmm. And with Aspen Ladd, she's got good cardio. She keeps coming. She got beat up the first two rounds fairly handily against Raquel Pennington. In the third round, she got the takedown. She established some control. She grinded her up against the cage. It looked like she just got off to a slow start in that fight. If she comes out here, gets off to a faster start, you know, kind of starts getting aggressive early, presses her backwards. Sarah McMahon will probably shoot takedowns. She might get them, but you have to make her work the entire time. She'll fatigue. When she fatigues, she second guesses herself. When she's fatigued and second guesses herself and gets hit, 
that's where Sarah McMahon tends to curl up. Now, 41, I don't think her durability or her harder is somehow going to get exponentially bigger. So I, I would say Aspen Ladd probably takes it. But the weigh-ins are going to be key because, one, you want to see Aspen Ladd make the weight. And if she makes it well, then she's big. She's fought at 45. She's very strong and physical. Sarah McMahon, Carol Rose is a 25er. Should fight at 25, 100%, right? So mm-hmm. taking her down and holding her down, that's a lot easier than taking down Aspen Ladd and holding her down, given she's probably about 40 pounds heavier, or 20 pounds, sorry, heavier than her. So I got to go with Ladd. And uh, I would take Ladd by decision, but with McMahon, when she folds up shop, there ain't no decision here, dog. That's no. it for her, right? And so for that reason, it probably seems like you would take Ladd inside the distance if you were trying to get greedy with it. But minus 145 is a money line. It's not deep enough that I need to get greedy with it. I'm okay with just hitting that. How about this? For, you know, for people's entertainment, and so I don't sink money into Sarah McMahon, and then she absolutely folds up shop, as she is wont to do in so many of her fights. Let's, let's make a shoey bet on this one. How do you feel about that, Cody? And and you're you're taking Sarah McMahon on the shoey bet? I'll take Sarah McMahon. I just think like really? Lad leans yeah, on okay. the wrestling sure. every single sure. time. And we're well in advance of weigh-ins here, so it's like you know you're gonna be sweating this shoey bet if Lad shows up and looks <laughs> like looks like Skeletor. <laughs> yeah, you know, they pull yeah, out the yeah. hurtin' curtain like uh, this will be more f- more so for entertainment, less so because I'm confident in Sarah McMahon. The problem with Sarah McMahon is that, yes, she should have the wrestling advantage, but, like, wrestling and what? Like, a lot of the times, like, she just kind of holds you down and just controls you, um, controls you down there, which can be enough to win some rounds, but the cardio seems to be fading a little bit as she gets a little bit longer in the tooth in her UFC career. If this fight just ends up being the two of them on the feet, like woof, that's going to be such an ugly fight all the way around. Um, but you know, one of them was an Olympian in wrestling. The other one is Aspen Lodge. So for the purposes of the show, for the purposes, we haven't had a shoey bet in a while. I knew you were going to pick loud figured this is close enough to a pick. Um, I don't want to bet Sarah McMahon because I'm scared of, I'm terrified that she's just going to absolutely fold up. And you know, when Aspen lad gets like, when she gets hot and heavy, like, you know, she starts making some like wild, like warrior sounds as she's and like Sarah McMahon's not going to know what to do. So, um, I think McMahon's going to win like a very, very disgusting, disgusting decision where round three, they're both dog tired and McMahon's like holding on for dear life, but somehow just scrapes by. But yeah, for Shuey bet, I think it's a really good fight for a Shuey bet. Uh, I'll pick McMahon for the purposes of the show and we've got the Shuey bet. It seems like it's official that it's on Cody. Yeah, let's do it. It's on. Let's on. Let's go. All right. We got Loma Luke Boomy taking on Denise Gomez minus 215. Luke Boomy. Plus 185, Gomez, who you got, buddy? Yeah, like the line's probably a little bit wide considering 115-pound females, both strikers, going to go 15 minutes, going to be relatively competitive. I don't know that I wouldn't want to be holding a ton of Luke Bume tickets. But yeah, yeah, I think she gets the job done. Denise Gomez seems just extremely uh, mediocre average. Uh, Well, first of all, you never see any of her grappling. She's not initiating any clinches. She's not looking to grab a hold. She's not looking to take you down. She's just looking to back you up and box you up. Her takedown defense looks pretty all right. But uh, yeah, for the most part, it's just she's looking to throw left hand, right hand. A lot of it's looping hooks over the top. Aggressive, but got a ways to come. 
the Miliana Dudieva fight for Invicta. She overwhelms a girl who's just quite honestly not all that good. Again, takedown defense looked pretty solid. Um, overwhelms her down the stretch, puts her away. But it's the fight on the contender series against Ryan Almeida. She's a big favorite over Ama- uh, Amanda. And in the first round, Amanda backs her up like quite well. Beats her to the punch almost every time. Way faster. Throws everything a lot more linear. Physically strong. Second round, Amanda's doing well. But you can tell she's the one that's fatiguing. And Gomez does have a decent enough cardio that uh, she just keeps pushing the pace on her. Wins the second round. Wins the third round. Ends up landing something like 99 significant strikes. Had good volume in that fight. But again, a lot of it was her opponent who seemed more skilled, had tired out. And when she tired out, she's slowly able to work her way back into it. She's accepting this fight on... Three weeks notice. She's taking this fight on three weeks notice, uh, replacing Diana Balbita. Mm-hmm. So you just fight in a 15-minute fight that was competitive, that you got hit a whole bunch, that you know was a, was a decent enough hard-fought 15 minutes. A three-week turnaround is going to be difficult. Making a UFC debut in itself is always difficult. And then her primary weapon is her striking. She enjoys to strike. And Loma Lugume just seems, yeah, way more, way more comfortable. And the thing with Lugume, she's 26 years old. So she's she's still super young. But she was a one-dimensional Thai fighter a handful of years ago, right? A 105-pound one-dimensional Thai fighter. So they've been really behind the eight ball trying to get her all those MMA skills. But I think they're doing a pretty decent job. Two fights ago against Sam Hughes, her wrestling looked career best. She scored four takedowns in that fight. Physically in the clinch, very, very strong. Loves work the body with the knees. It's difficult to say, well, her volume on paper doesn't look all that good. She's not landing a whole lot of strikes. She lands a whole lot of strikes. Fight metrics not picking up on because a lot of it is short little elbows, short little knees. They're saying it might not be significant, but it's a, it's a tie game. It's volume. She's just continuously breaking you down and working you. Now, yes, against Lupita Godinez, someone who's much larger than her and has fought as high as 125, has a wrestling advantage. She got completely stifled in that fight, completely got you know shut down. But this is basically a year later. It's like 10 months later. She's at Bang Tao with the Hickman brothers. They're always been high up on her. But again, apparently she's making strides as always. And I just think that she is a better striker. Wrestling is good enough to keep this fight standing. Might be good enough to mix in a takedown or two if need be. But I think Gomez is more of a rangy at distance striker. And Lokume is going to largely be able to enter the pocket, grab a holder with the tie clinch, work the body, press her up against the cage, make it a dirty fight. And then even at range, has a lot of great distance kicks, a little bit faster, a little bit sharper. I just think that she's going to pick her way at her. So two to one, I don't love. And I would definitely take this fight by decision if you're taking Loma Lokume. So maybe try to improve it a little bit in that area. But, uh, you know, we've all been burned by heavyweights and 115-pound women. So uh, I, I don't know how much faith you could have in it, even though it does look good, and I am back in her. Yeah, I mean, there was a, this line was like minus 270 when I first made the board on Monday afternoon, and then we're on Wednesday afternoon when we're making this or make, doing this show right now. So people have come in on the underdog to meet Denise Gomez to bring her down to like, you know, minus 215, minus 205 I see out there. So the market is moving towards the underdog, but I think that's probably a lot of people going like, you know, striker versus striker. Hopefully this is a close matchup between the two of them. Um, Luke Boomy decision is pretty much, uh, can be had for like minus 105 uh, out there. Ranges from like minus 105 to minus 140. That would be my pick as well. Um Relatively tepid striking affair. Goes 15 minutes. Luke Boomi's got all of the experience. He's making improvements. Denise Gomez coming in on relatively short notice. Was hit 
like 90, 90 times in that contender series fight too. So kind of a quick turnaround when you're taking that many shots. Moving on down, we've got Daniel Zellhuber taking on Trey Ogden. Daniel Zellhuber is a minus 300 favorite. Ogden can be had for plus 250. We were talking to Max Roushkoff on the show not that long ago. Um, I think he's got a fight coming up in October here. I haven't seen the official announcement, so hopefully nothing's uh, got stalled on that front. But he was talking about how he's training with Zell Huber in Vegas and that this guy was super, super legit. I mean, on Contender Series, you know, some people could be like, oh, well, he went like, you know, pretty life and death with Lucas Almeida. It's like Almeida showed up in the UFC before Zell Huber and proved that, like, he belongs, like, put on a clinic against Mike Trezano. And, um, yeah, like I think Zell Huber looks like a legitimate uh, prospect 14 and oh, uh, putting in work with a bunch of excellent, excellent fighters in Vegas of like a great room to be, you know, developing yourself in and Trey Ogden got outstruck by Jordan Levitt, man, like that, that fight in general, it's like, I had money on Ogden because you know, me typically, all against Levitt except for Patty Pimblett. I, I've got, I got, I've, Jordan Levitt has cost me a whole bunch of money, but that's besides the point. Ogden, like, getting outstruck at range against Levitt, like, justifies this price as far as I'm concerned. Z Daniel Zellhuber should absolutely steamroll him. A lot of people are going to look at it and be like, oh, contender series guy. Oh, he hasn't really been tested. It's just like, that fight against Lucas Almeida is 10 times harder than this Trey Ogden fight. Zellhuber rolls. What do you think? Yeah, dude, I got to agree as well. Zell Huber looks pretty solid. First of all, the kid was training for the vast majority of his career in Mexico City, right? So he's a mile high up in the air. His cardio is good. And that was one thing in the Almeida fights. Like Almeida gets a hot start and lands a whole bunch of big, big shots on this on this kid. People will look at that like, oh, that's a red flag. He's getting hit with big shots. But no, man, that shows you he's got a good chin. And that's the stuff you want to know from a young fighter. He's undefeated and he was 22 years old at the time, right? Can he take a punch? Can he face adversity well he showed in that Almeida fight it's like yeah he could take excellent shot his cardio is excellent that's what won him the fight down the stretch is the ability to roll the punches and come forward you look at some of his other fights he's very comfortable and calm everywhere I mean against the uh, Miguel Arzamendi fight for Lux it's like he hits him with a calf slicer and it's just like a beautiful transition floats on top kids got a nasty ground game but of course being six foot one with a 77 inch reach he is long standing, got excellent leg kicks, got a good jab, can take a hell of a punch. And of course, his grappling is solid. So you can just see him getting better and better. Now, here's the even better kicker on top of all this, right? He's training in Mexico City, which has the altitude, but also who you train with, right? So the kid signs with the UFC and then right away, he went to Thailand, went to Tiger Muay Thai, got some rounds and spent some time with some of the best guys in the game. And then leaves Tiger Muay Thai, goes to Las Vegas, as you mentioned. And he's not just like in the room at Extreme Couture, like he's like a top class guy like he's getting rounds in with max roshkoff as you mentioned his guy is eric nixick is coaching him not one of the other secondary coaches nixick right so they've got a lot of faith in him ufc signs him why is he not debuted yet well that's excellent but this is good for him he was 22 the last time you saw him he looked pretty good they've given him a full year off to train in one of the best gyms in the world two of the best gyms in the world some of the best bodies like he's 23 now He's still a big boy. He's still got all those skills. And I just think you're going to see a much better version of him. So yes, it is his UFC debut, but the one little misconception about like UFC debut bright lights, it's like what bright lights it's, it's in the apex. He's already fought in the apex. There's no live crowd. There's no huge live crowd. 
What difference is it than fighting? A, what difference is it fighting Trey Ogden than it was fighting Almeida, a tougher guy in this exact same setup? So I don't know that jitters are going to get to him. I think the kid's going to be quite comfortable with himself. Uh, Ogden, meanwhile, I think he got into the UFC kind of, I don't know. I mean, he hadn't really beaten the best level of guys to get there. But yeah, with Jordan Levitt, it's like, okay, well, it's grappler versus grappler. So as long as you can keep the fight standing, anybody can outstrike Levitt, right? Right? Wrong. First round, he probably is outstriking Levitt. Then he slips on a high kick and just falls to his back. Levitt gets on top. That's it. No ability to get back up. Big red flag, number one. Red flag, number two. Second round, entirely uh, stand up. And Levitt just outside, inside leg kicks him from distance. He had no footwork, no ability to close the distance, no speed, no ability to change the game plan or cut off the cage. Like, terrible round. And then in the third round, dope. He gets a takedown. He sets up shop on top. And then, boom, easy sweep from Jordan Levitt. Levitt ends up on top. And then, bang, still he can't get up up his back. Gives up the entirety of the round as well. So his striking looked bad. His wrestling looked bad. His game, His ground game off of his back looked bad. I could not tell you where he beat Zell Huber. If he doesn't get to the fight to the ground, he's getting chopped up standing. Uh, his wrestling not good enough to get the fight to the ground. And even if he did get the fight to the ground, this tough. kid's just going to post. He's going to post and stand right back up. So I think he's got him beat everywhere. So uh, this feels to me top two ticket kind of play. Money's coming in on Zell Huber. The line's not that great right now, but it's continuously getting worse and worse. And I just think he's got this guy outgunned everywhere. If the kid loses, people will chalk it up to 23-year-old making his UFC debut and this and that and this and that. And I understand that. But if we're just looking at it for skills and tape study and footage and where both guys are at and potential, like he's got he's got an Ogden beat everywhere. So 100% I'll be taking him. And uh, I got a feeling he gets it done inside the distance. Ogden, like most of his losses outside of the Levitt uh, are rear naked choke loss to Nick Brown guillotine choke against thomas gifford and guillotine choke against thomas gilford gifford twice we remember thomas Gil, uh, gifford one of you know my worst fighter and white worst fighters in the ufc way back when zell huber i mean the props are just kind of opening up but i mean i see a, a cast slicer on this guy's record i see uh what else do i see on his record i see some other like sneaky kind of submission that I probably have to go watch the tape on triangle choke. It's like, is it even live for like Zell Huber putting in all this extra work is like, even if he does get taken down that he could find a sub. Cause it's like eight to one for him to get a submission in this spot. Eight to one for the Greasy. sub. Yeah. Yeah. We'll yeah, see. Is, we'll see where we'll, we'll see. We'll see where the, uh, where the rest of the, you know, props I mean, he got choked out by Thomas Gifford. Right? Twice. So kind of. <laughs> Twice. Yeah, it's not exactly the best spot. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's like, eh, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see if somebody, uh, obviously they are pricing it as Zell Huber is going to keep this fight standing. That's probably the more wise path to victory for him. But crazy things happen in MMA all of the time. So, I mean, I'm coming off of a Johnny Walker by submission round one. I mean, I bet the one, two, and three, but it came out to twenty-eight to one this past week. So, I got a little, got a little extra sauce to be throwing some sprinkles out there. We'll see. Uh, I mean, I haven't even made a bet this week. I've just got like a considering list that I'll recap at the end of the show. Um, and at Paul Shag on Twitter, where I'll drop all of my plays at some point on Saturday morning. Moving on down, we've got Jillian Robertson taking on Maria Agapova. Minus 140, Robertson, plus 120. 
Swagapova. I mean, this is kind of like your old-timey striker versus grappling match here. Um, Jillian Robertson is going to try her damnedest to get this fight to the mat and should have a, a significant uh, grappling advantage or at least BJJ advantage if she gets the fight to the mat on the feet. Agapova is so hard to kind of read because like, it seems she's such a Jekyll and Hyde kind of fighter. It's like we've seen her show up and she looks incredible. Um, you know, the Mazo fight where she's just like, just styling on her at range, looks super, super strong, ha had everything going for her. But when she meets resistance and when she meets resistance from someone who is able to consistently take her down, she tends to wilt. Hence the, um, you know, the loss to Marina Moreau's last time out. Um, cool. I'm kind of leaning towards Agapova. I, I really don't rate Jillian Robertson's wrestling all that highly. And if it's on the feet, like Agapova is a serious problem for her. So ever so slight lean towards Agapova. Don't think I'm going to get there from a betting perspective because, yeah, it's just it's Jekyll and Hyde. I don't know which Maria is going to show up this week. What about you? Yeah, well, you never know what version of Maria Agapova is going to show up. But the version of her that doesn't show up is low level. I can't get behind it. Girl lost to Shayna Dobson in what is considered the biggest upset in like MMA history. She was like an 18 to 1 favorite. Now, of course, it wasn't the biggest MMA upset in history. But by the numbers, it shouldn't have happened. But yeah, when she's at a low level. And we've talked about the allegations of the drugs and this person's and she's attacking people and she's sleeping with all everybody's husband. And there was all these whack ass. She's, she's a wild card for sure. She's a wild card, but it's like when she does show up, she swings and she's got a long frame for the division. She sits down on her punches. A lot of it's loopy, but she has that 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 distance that she catches you on the end of those shots. Her fight with Sabina Mazzo, that's the best she's ever looked, both physically, both skill-wise. Um, ends up dropping her in the third round and getting a rear naked choke victory. So solid enough work. But I got to go tinfoil hat conspiracy theory on this one. So she hates Marina Moroz. Marina Moroz talked all this shit and she made all those allegations and embarrassed her. And she's like, we're throwing down, we're throwing down. Now these ladies don't like each other because of their time spent together at American Top Team, right? Now that fight happens. Marina Moroz just instantly presses her up against the cage, dub, uh, digs double underhooks, and just peels her to the ground and puts a beating on her in the first round. Second round, actually Agapova ends up on top at first, ha takes her back in the first round, has some spots, but you can see she's not comfortable in the grappling. And as a result, Marina Moroz, who is a member of the Ukrainian uh, amateur boxing team, not really known for her grappling or her wrestling, easily just reverses position, gets on top. Probably wins the first round, definitely winning the second round, putting a beating on her. And then they bring in their little Dean Thomas. Dean Thomas pops up on the bottom of the screen. They say, hey, Dean, what can you tell us? And Dean Thomas says, well, this is a case of fighters having trained together previously. Because when these two girls trained together at American Top Team, this is exactly what Marina Moroz did to her every single time. She would just annihilate her with the grappling. She's that much better of a grappler than her. She knew this is the way to beat her, and she has just proceeded to do it. Literally, as he's saying this sentence, she grabs the head and arm choke and just chokes out Agapova, right? So Dean Thomas is saying, I'm a coach at American Top Team. We've all been in the room. We've all seen it. Marina Moroz did this to her every day at practice, and now has proceeded to do it in the fight itself, right? Mm -hmm. Tells you what you need to know. Now, Jillian Robertson was a longtime member of American Top Team. When she branched off from American Top Team, Dean Thomas went with her. Dean Thomas is her primary coach. 
he goes into the cage and gives her her in-between rounds. This fight was initially Melissa Gatto versus Jillian Robertson. And let me tell you, Omomoto Gatto, Mr. Melissa Gatto, is pretty legit, dude. She's strong. She broke Victor Leonardo's arm. She's strong. She's physical. Coming off a loss, but again, a high-level opponent. Um, that was going to be a tough fight. Now you lose that opponent on like a week's notice and they grab up Agapova. I would say that Dean and Robertson know I need to take this girl down. I can take this girl down. I've done it in practice many times. And once the fight does hit the ground, she'll have a huge advantage. Jillian um, Robertson was getting beat up by your girl Priscilla Cachoeira standing. She didn't look good at yeah. all. But the second she was able to time that double leg and get the fight to the ground, you do see she does have an advanced ground game. Of course, all of her losses are to good girls within the division, right? She's lost to Macy Barber. She's lost to Miranda Maverick. She's lost to JJ Aldrich. Like none of these are uh, would be considered low level opponents. They're all solid enough girls. But at 27 years old, Jillian Robertson is not old. She's experienced. Her best work comes from getting the fight to the ground. I would say that she has a wrestling advantage over Agapova and should be able to just get her down, use that ground game. So just because of how bad Agapova's looked on the ground and how she's given up two takedowns to Shayna Dobson, she's given up two takedowns to Marina Moroz. When she did get taken down, she didn't really have much of a game. It just leads me to believe that like Robertson's live to just hit a couple takedowns and then make things miserable for her. So I will take Jillian Robertson, but... Uh, yeah, yeah. This uh, on a fourteen fight card, you don't have to overextend yourself. You might not want a whole lot of, uh, you know, exposure to this fight in particular. R Robertson's lucky. Cab didn't get to that bell, and Cab really tried to get to the bell by eye gouging her um, at the end of round one. There, tried to eye gouge her. Yeah, she, she yeah. was. And she was even... in for a. She was in for a, a rude <laughs> awakening in round two because Cab was gonna keep coming at her. People wanted Cab to get uh, get fired after that spot, which. Give your head a shake. Cab's the best. She's I won digress. two fights since then. Yeah, I mean, she's on a two-fight winning streak. And when, you know what? Social media is not everything, but when you check out Agapova's social media, it's a lot of her by herself. Like, she goes to big gyms, and I'm sure she gets quality rounds in, but, like, she's not, like, a part of the team. It's not like she has bodies that are, like... She's, she's like, a reported know, crazy person. So, like, she's going to come down. She's going to throw down. Welcome. No doubt about that. But if you look at all of her losses, even back, uh, Tracy Cortez is a beast. So, whatever. But, yeah, but dating back to the Contender Series until now, wrestling defense has always been her issue. And Jillian Robertson is extremely one-dimensional. But, like, that one dimension that she does have, wrestling grab? Ah, maybe not wrestling, but grappling, right? she get the fight to the ground. she make it happen for herself. There's a lot of pictures of uh, Agapova. I'm looking at her... Uh... At her Instagram. A lot of pictures of her with assault rifles, to be perfectly honest. Dude, it's like one of them's like a sniper rifle, like a 50 cal sniper rifle. You would not There's be able to buy those. Guns. You would not be able to buy those in Canada. I can tell you that much. Those are all outlawed weapons. But she's in the great state of Florida, so. Imagine Dayton. Oh, yeah, good. didn't you? Paul Shaughnessy once went to the third biggest second, gun show in second biggest gun second, show in Southwest Florida. Was that it? Correct. Yes. <laughs> so it's the second biggest gun show. I bought a t-shirt. Southwest Florida. It's not even Man, the biggest they, gun show in Florida or the second biggest in Florida. Second Southwest. And apparently it was nuts. Well, like the in biggest Pocatuck, one I would there. imagine. The, the biggest one I would imagine would be in Tampa. This was in Cape Coral, which is like just down the coast <laughs> from camp uh, from Tampa. And I'm sure they have a bigger one probably in Miami. But, like, you had to drive, like, 30 minutes outside of of the city down this, like, un, 
unmarked like road and then there was like this convention hall and then the parking lot well the parking lot was just a field but it was just filled with cars and you went in and there was like if you wanted to commit horrible horrible acts on humans like there was like like bear like these like these sticks with like metal spikes on them that like you could like I don't know what you would do with it besides like maim someone um I went and bought a t-shirt um that it had a bear I've lost in it just said the right to bear arms and there was like a, a bear with like a machine gun but like different world I mean up here it's like you can buy hunting rifles but handguns are you know are illegal these type of weapons that Swagapova is, is care is touting those are illegal oh yeah the best story was like this granny she was like probably 85 years old and I was kind of I, I went there to like people watch because it was just so outside of like my Canadian mentality and this granny is like up there talking to like this this gun salesman and she goes oh well you know She's like, oh, I like, I like that one there. That one's really cute. Which, like, calling a gun cute seems very weird to me. But in fairness, it was, like, really, really small, and it was pink. And she's like, yeah, that'll, that'll fit, like, right underneath, like, the front seat of my car. And it's just like, so granny's packing heat. Um, I mean, so many, so many great stories. I, I digress. Like, it's, it's kind of one of those things, if you ever have a drink with me, I'll tell you all of, the, all of the details for the purposes of this show. We'll... We'll leave it at that, but Florida is a much different place than Canada. I will just say that. They love their guns. Um, yeah, let's move on. We got uh, Javid Basharat taking on Tony Gravely. Basharat is a minus 160 favorite. Gravely can be had 4 plus 140. Javid's brother, Farid, obviously on the Contender Series uh, card on Tuesday night. Rolled through, and Javid is pretty similar. Like, most of his game is, um, you know, take you down, wear you down, gas you out. They both seem to have incredible cardio. Um, interesting spot, but I, I feel like it's kind of one of those things where unless Javid gets, you know, his lights turned out, like, he kind of has a pretty good style to wear down a guy like Tony Gravely, who... Usually has hot starts, is a thick, bulky wrestler, but should be out grappled if they do get to the ground. Like he could be in danger from, you know, submission attempts from Basharat. And the longer this fight goes on, I think Gravely kind of falls apart. So Javid will be the pick for me. What about you? Yeah, I got mixed feelings about this one. <clears throat> I think I'm going to pick Javid as well, but. A couple of just like question marks. First and foremost, how good is wrestling? Like we haven't really seen anybody go in the game plan of just I'm purely going to take this guy down and dominate him. And again, looking at the guys on his record, they've all been fairly low level until maybe the last three. It looks like his cardio is awesome. It looks like his pace is good. His durability is good. His submission game solid. But again, he's not had to face that style of just like hard, gritty nosed American wrestler. And in Tony Gravely's case. He's like a three-time state champion from Virginia, two-time All-American, uh, wrestled at Appalachian State and University, a D1 program, attended the D1 finals twice, like the, you know, the, the tournament. Like his wrestling is pretty solid, and so he's able to blend it in quite well in MMA. You see just two fights ago against Simon Oliveira, 11 takedowns in that fight, and just... 
you know, swarms him the entire time. So if he does come in with a wrestling heavy game plan, I think he could have some success. The other thing with Gravely, he's got like big, big, big power. So you can back him up and you can land combinations and this and that, but you got to watch out for that because he loves to step in on the pocket, throw uppercuts right up the middle, hurt guys. And I feel like he's definitely a problem, but it's the it's the durability. Same thing you kind of mentioned is the reason why I keep coming back to Javid Bashara. If you look at all of Tony Gravely's losses, for the most part, it's him being systematically broken down over time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, lost to Pat Sabatini, taken down, choked out. Ricky Bandene tires him out in the second round, chokes him out. Uh, Manny Bermudez, armbar. Rob Bajfili, just a better wrestler, right? Broke him down. Patchy Mix, first round submission. His fight with uh, Brett Johns, what a treat to watch, man. An excellent fight to watch live. Uh, even rewatching it, awesome. Scramble, scramble, scramble. But Johns breaks him down, tires him out. Once he's tired, he gets sloppy, makes mistakes. He gets caught in another rear naked choke, right? So he's got a problem with that. But the Nate Maness fight, first round, he drops Maness. Probably could have got a stoppage. Breaks yep. the guy's jaw. His corner has to pick him back up. And in the second round, Gravely's tired. Gravely fights with his hands low. And be all that, Gravely's five foot five with a small little reach on him. So he needs to continuously crash the pocket, which is inherently dangerous. He gets clipped. He gets knocked out. So in his last two fights, he's done an excellent job. Simon Oliveira strictly just wrestling him down for the entirety of the fight. And then his last fight with Johnny Munoz, you know, a little shuffle uppercut right up the middle before the fight really got started. You know, it's like minute eight seconds or something into the first round. Um, yet you've not seen him have to get pushed to his limits again. And the thing with the Javid Vashra is I think you're going to have to fight him tooth and nail. If you do get the takedowns, I do see him getting back up. He's got the kind of cardio to push a pace. I think that uh, Tony Gravely is going to have a lot of success landing, but Bashrod's durable. If he takes those shots and he returns fire and makes this a dog fight, and again, you mentioned him and his brother kind of fight similar. That's how they fight, man. Make it a greasy fight. Watching that fight uh, last night because it was the last well, it was the main event of the card, right? So it's like, let's get Bashrat to win. And it was a good night for everybody. And Bashrat in the first, like, I'm watching the live line. He starts off at minus 220. Like, 30 seconds in, he's minus 190, right? Then he's minus 170. Then it drops to even. It was an even money fight up until he threw the guy down to the ground and got on top. And then it went from even to minus 700 in the span of, like, three minutes. It was just one-way traffic. But it was, sometimes you got to take that those early shots. Sometimes you got to get hit a few times and just continuously come forward, break the guy down. Trevor Peak, my boy, was the same thing. The early was going to be tough, but the ability to take all that damage to sustain it and keep chugging forward, that was ultimately what was going to get the win. Bashrat's going to be the same thing here. Gravely's going to put him in some sticky situations early, but I think Bashrat's going to eventually just, you know, break on through to the other side. So minus 165, not a great line, but I do agree he's going to get the win. Last thing I will throw on there is... Gravely versus Simon Oliveira looks good because of the 11 takedowns. But keep in mind two things. One, Simon Oliveira, five foot five. He's basically, I think he's five foot four. He's the same size as Gravely. So it's going to be easier to take him down. Whereas Basharat, five nine, big, strong, physical guy. But uh, Tony Gravely gets the same takedown every time. Double underhooks, rear waist, body lock. And Simon Oliveira just kept grabbing the guillotine. He grabbed the guillotine every single time. He's giving up the takedown to pursue a flimsy guillotine choke. That's not going to happen versus Basharat. And Aljamain Sterling and them, they spent time with, he spent time with both Basharat brothers. And he's like, yo, you had better take these guys down. He's like, Javid's a problem standing and his brother's quickly developing as well, right? That's Aljamain telling you that. Since then, the guys have gone full time to Las Vegas, training with some of the best guys. Like, it's just, a, it's a progression. Gravely will be a live underdog. He will be a problem at times. But at the end of the day, the man that gets their hand raised, I got to go with Javid Basharat. Yep, I think Bashrock could end up being like a good live opportunity. Gravely gets some takedowns early, holds top control, 
squeaks out the first round, it could be a good opportunity to jump in at Javid um, at plus money. And finally, we got Nicholas Mata taking on Cameron Van Camp. Minus 185 Mata, plus 160 for Van Camp. You got any thoughts? Because I don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to go with the underdog on Cameron Van Camp. I know it don't sound good, but the plus money here actually looks quite decent, and I see a path of victory for him. So we'll start off with Nicholas Mata and why you should want no part of Nicholas Mata. Uh, he's never quite really again got to that next level he was young when he was on the ultimate fighter he was 25 uh guy that started his pro career at 19 years old like maybe he was going to get better but i hate to shit on him but like he doesn't seem very athletic his movements aren't very explosive he doesn't have good footwork nothing's fast twitch it's a lot of mostly just lumbering he's got like of a brazilian style where like he'll walk you down and throw a lot of loopy strikes but i'm not seeing that fast twitch mu muscle reaction that speed out of him and then he's got a, I think he's got a chin problem. So his first pro loss, because he lost to Glyco Frock on the Ultimate Fighter, but his first pro loss since Antonio Carlos Ribeiro, he knocks him out a minute and eight seconds into the first round. Bad look, but maybe you just got caught. Second pro loss, Robert Hale, 246 of the first round, he knocks him out. So it's the second time he's lost in his pro career, both of which he's been knocked out, both of which in the first round. Then his fight against Jim Miller, Paul, he got beat up standing I know, for I had both money. rounds. I had money on Jim <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. as I know an underdog against a, a UFC newcomer. I was just like, Jim Miller's been done this dance 40 times. Sign me up. And I saw them, a lot of people score the first round for Moda, and, but then rewatching the fight twice more, obviously before the preview show, um, Jim Miller's landing all of the better shots in the first round. And it might be that it's the southpaw stance from Jim Miller, which is throwing Moda off, but that inside leg kick is money. He lands it every single time, chews off the front leg. Moda eventually just got no mobility to begin with, and now he's got a hurting leg, so he gets desperate, tries to swing one, and Jim catches him with a short right hand when he steps in. It's not like it's a bomb. It's not like it's a big old power shot. It wasn't like it was the last punch on a three-piece three piece or four-piece combination. It was just like a short little shot stepping in, and Moda just crumbles over to the floor. That effectively marks the third loss of his pro career, but also the third time he's been KO'd and against Miller, you know, a near 40 year old veteran, not exactly. Well, the guy's got power. We can't take that away from him, but you know what I'm saying? It's just not exactly the best look going. Now, of course he was a almost two to one favorite over Jim Miller. People expected more out of him, but you look at his fight on contender series against jo Joseph Maori. Not that good. I mean, Maori just doesn't have anything to offer him, but he walks him down around the ring, throws some loopy shots. I wouldn't say it's the most impressive thing going his fight prior versus Juan Gonzalez, which is where he wins the CFFC title it's a four-round fight and like watching paint dry paul nothing happens this guy don't throw he don't throw he's got very 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 low volume that's going to be a problem so there's a lot of red flags here he's got a potentially questionable chin he's a very low volume guy i uh, just coming off that knockout loss like i don't know all these things is just like i wouldn't really want any part of him so People will say, well, the UFC is doing him a massive favor, uh, favor here and giving him a free layup in the form of Cameron Van Camp. That may be true. And when you watch footage on um, Van Camp, ah, he got like an okay Dars choke. He likes to grab a hold of the neck. His striking seems a little bit stiff. He himself just doesn't really seem all that good if we're being perfectly honest with each other. Debuts in the UFC, and I'm looking to fade the hell out of him, right? They match him against Andre Fialo. This is a bad look for sure. Fialo is a tough dude who absolutely hits hard. And 
I'll give Van Camp credit. He looked career best, man. He's moving excellent. He's in and out of the pocket. His footwork looked good. He had a nasty little body kick that he was using effectively from range, but his speed looked on point. His volume looked on point. He looked comfortable. He rocked Andre Fialo in the early going, got a little too eager, got countered with a counter left hook. After that settled, it ends up getting knocked out. That's fair, right? Here's the real kicker here. That fight's at 170, right? All of his fights prior, Kenny Goudreau, 170, Ross Cyan, 170, Craig Eckelberg, 170, Stickin, Bobby Volker, Quentin Parks, all 170. This fight's at 155 pounds. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the size of them, right? Cameron Van Camp's six foot two, like a 74 inch reach, I want to say. Let me just confirm that for you. He's six foot two with a 74 inch reach, right? Nicholas Mon is five foot nine with a 70 inch reach. He's not a big guy. He's small for lightweight to begin with. Jim Miller looked much bigger than him. Jim Miller hit way harder than him. And Jim Miller is also five foot eight, five foot nine. Cameron Van Camp successfully gets on those scales, looks at, at, at 155 and looks good. Then he's going to be much larger. I think he's got a speed advantage. He's longer. He's got better volume. He's just quite literally could stay to the outside and just beat him to the punch, kick him to the body and so on and so forth. So then the last thing is like, well, what about his chin? You know, he got diced by Fialo his last time out. That's fair. But again, you look through Nicholas Mata's record and he's like not really known as a power puncher. He don't throw shit, first of all. And then when he does throw, like oftentimes it's just kind of loopy, you know, stuff with impact, but not necessarily that big KO power. So if he doesn't randomly clip Van Camp, Van Camp's just going to control the outside and chip away at him, give a good account of himself. So I would urge people to watch back his loss, even though he gets KO'd in the first round. He gives, you know, there's some good takeaways from that spot. Right before he gets KO'd, Joe Rogan's like, damn, Van Camp's looking like a problem. Then he gets KO'd as Rogan's saying it. So I get it. He can get clipped. It's MMA. It could happen to anybody. But the skill looked there. Him coming down to 155, that's what's interesting to me. Six foot two, four inch reach advantage on top of that. Dog pick. Uh, Cody normally would say, you know what? Jeez, it looks like. Van Camp's a bum. Nicholas Moto's going to roll. And that's one of my apple pie shitters. My other apple pie shitter would probably normally be Pat Sabatini. Geez, he, he, he 30-27s everybody. Just takes them down and out grinds them. No problem. Those are the guys I'm looking to avoid. Them in particular, the guys I'm looking to avoid this week and uh, try to go the other side, catch some plus money. I like this new Cody. This new Cody has suggested such guys as, and not necessarily that he's confident in them, but Gregory Rodriguez at plus 105. Damon Jackson at plus 155, Louis Koski at plus 180, and Cameron Van Camp. Like, wise people have once said when Cody bets a dog, you bet that dog. So, we'll say there's still plenty of days before the fights go down. I haven't even made a bet. I've been too busy making memes. Um, and um, so, it is what it is. Obviously, we got that shooey bet. Uh, that's locked in, locked and loaded. Uh, McMahon versus Cody's baby. Uh, Aspen lad, but otherwise the ones I, the bites, the bets I'm considering right now are under four and a half rounds. Market keeps continuing to move. I see a plus one forty out there right now in the main event. Um, I just think that both of these guys are so dangerous that it should probably be closer to fifty fifty. Considering a Feely money line, Tanner a Bozer money line, maybe an inside the distance prop on him because Nasamento isn't above you know, fallen to smithereens and absolutely flopping. Uh, Zell Huber, I like, is a parlay piece, trying to figure out what to do. But I also think maybe there could be some sneakiness on uh, him by submission because that market does not really get 
getting prices if he has any sort of submission skills. Um, on prize picks, kind of light, but I'll, I'll post on Twitter more as the week goes along. Only thing I've got locked in right now is Tanner Bozer more than 35.5 significant strikes and Trevin Giles less than 1.5 t- takedowns. Cody, hit him with the PRP. Hitting him with the PRP, we're going to go with Corey Sanhagen, Gregory Rodriguez, dog number one, Andre uh, Feely, which is nearing money, kind of, Josh Pfeiffer, Tanner Bozer, Anthony Hernandez, uh, Damon Jackson, dog number two, Louis Koski, dog number three, Aspen Ladd, Lomaluk Bume, Daniel Zulheber, Jillian Robertson, uh, Javid Basharat, and Cameron Van Camp, dog number four. So we have a 14-fight card, four underdogs, 10 favorites. That seems like an appropriate balance to me. But, of course, there's a couple stuff you might want to pass on, a couple things you want to go heavier with. I think you've got at least four or five uh, solid plays that we like to use at that top, and then it's all about getting the right mixture of the rest of them. So, again, I like this card, entertainment standpoint, name-wise, um, and of course, you know, gambling wise as well. I think there's some excellent good spots to hit. So the last bit of information we can all take in, obviously, is the weigh-ins on Friday. See how everybody looks, see if they make weight, see if they look flustered, see if Aspen Lad's half what jittery and dying on the scales. Like, you know, maybe don't lock in an Aspen Lad play until you see that stuff. But all the same, on something like Zell Huber, you're gonna you're gonna lose the value here pretty soon. If not, you're already losing the value. Some people are going to, you might want to jump on right now. Some you might want to watch until the weigh-ins come. But uh, yeah, good looking show. So excited to see what happens on Saturday. Awesome. Awesome. And you know, I'll be watching those weigh-ins just anticipate. I mean, 135 for Lad has historically just been a, like a whole, even when she makes it, it's rough. So that's factoring into my shoey bet with you. Um, That is it for us this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. For Cody Safdick. And producer Megan, I'm Paul Shaughnessy saying goodbye and good luck. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.